Um, So we've got three readings today. Um, The first one is um, from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions um, they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree um, of Morah at Shechem. At At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.'" So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram sent out, set out and continued toward the Negev. Our next reading is from Hebrews chapter 11. Um, Verse 8 to 16. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city of with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who made the promise. And so from this one man... And he, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Um, And our last reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, um, and it will also be up on the screen. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, 
Each one of you should set aside a sum of your money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you all for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make it only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who, are, who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one, then, should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of, this, of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Archagus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you for they refreshed my spirit and yours also such men deserve recognition the churches in the province of asia send you greetings aquila and priscilla greet you warmly in the ward and so does the church that meets at their house all the brothers and sisters here send you greetings greet one another with a holy kiss i paul write this greeting in my own hand if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would draw near to us as we look at your word together this morning. Please write your word on our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we may love you, serve you, and live for you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Imagine buying a novel and just reading the last chapter or streaming a movie and just watching the final scene. Um, maybe you could take a stab at what the story was about uh, if you didn't have much time. But actually, ex if you don't actually experience the story, the ending's going to be pretty flat, right? You're not going to care about the characters. Um, you're not going to get what the big deal is. And here we are, just doing the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. Yeah. We just heard the final chapter which inspires us to live for Jesus, but without the previous 15 chapters, you don't really get the, the power and the glory of what Paul's asking us to do. It really needs those 15 chapters to make the last one work. So what I've given you is my 
a scrappy little picture of the whole book. <laughs> I'm not very good at drawing. So it starts with the death of Jesus. The cross shows us that God exercises his power through weakness. And the Corinthians needed to know that God values weak people who trust in him. And the middle of the book is mainly about bodies. Right? Your body belongs to Jesus. He bought it with his life. And so you can't do whatever you like with your body because your body matters. And the most important thing about your body is that it's part of a bigger body, the body of Christ. And what Jesus did for us on the cross sets us free to use our bodies to help other people be more like him. And then at the end, chapter 15 shows us the resurrection of Jesus. Right? Jesus walked a path of suffering and death, but it led to glory and it showed once and for all that God's foolishness is wiser than any human wisdom. It's a great journey. I so love this book. And chapter 15 is the most spectacular point. It's like a lookout where we get to see all the way to the new creation in the distance. And um, an amazing view like that is probably where you'd end a journey in a movie. But not in real life. You know, eventually, you've got to come back home and get on with living. And that's exactly how chapter 15 ends. You've seen a vision of what lies ahead. Now it's time to come down the mountain and get to work. Here's the last verse. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And as Dave showed us last week, the, word of the, the work of the Lord is basically what the whole book is about. Right? Proclaiming Christ crucified as the power of God and the wisdom of God. Entrusting yourself to God in your weakness, honoring him with your bodies as people bought with a price, loving one another as members of Christ's body, building each other up in love. The person that you become by doing all of that, by following Christ in this life, or the person you help somebody else to become by pointing them to Christ and building them up in Christ, those people are going to last forever perfected and glorious. That is the work of the Lord. So what exactly does that look like, doing the work of the Lord? Well, that's what chapter 16 shows us. It gives us, if you're a practical person, you should like this chapter, practical examples of giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And chapter 16 is designed to inspire us to imitate those examples. There are basically two sections in this chapter. The work of the Lord features both of them. First of all, in verse 10, uh, it says, When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. And then again in verse 16, Submit to such people, he's talking about the household of Stephanus, and to everyone who joins in the work, right, the work of the Lord, and labors at it. So the work of the Lord, that's what this whole chapter is about. Before we get into it, I thought I'd just ask you guys a little question. So you ready? When you were a kid, maybe primary school or high school, can you remember what was the best thing you made with your mom or dad or maybe with some other adult? Just think about it. 
What was the best thing you remember making? Um, if I was Dave, I'd make you talk to each other and tell me. <laughs> but instead, let me tell you about my best thing. It was a, a weatherboard hut that I helped my uncle build on his property when I was about 15 years old. I couldn't find a photo, so here's a much bigger house and some much smaller kids. It's not me. It was really hard work, and I was worn out by the end of each day, but how satisfying was that tiredness? You know, it was the weariness of accomplishment. My, my actual contribution was embarrassingly close to zero, but I still felt that was my hut, you know? Now, I don't have photos of my hut, but I do have photos of what I reckon was the best thing my brother made with our dad. They made a musical about Abraham. Welcome to the 80s. <laughs> my dad wrote the lyrics, my brother wrote the music, and our church staged it alongside a sermon series on Genesis. Right? Making a musical is a very different type of work from building a hut. Right? My dad would give my brother some lyrics. He'd have to work out how to fit the music to them. Sometimes my dad would adapt lyrics to make the job easier, and eventually the musical took shape. It's a bit like learning to dance. A child might start out by dancing on her dad's feet and learn to respond to his movements or else maybe do it more conventionally. But either way, if you want to build something great, say a musical or a dance performance, then the hours of work that you put into it are all about observing and responding. Observing and responding. And that's the picture I want us to leave with today, I think. Doing the work of the Lord it's like a child dancing to her father's feet. It's hard work, but it's deeply, deeply satisfying. So, 1 Corinthians 16. First 11 verses are about the collection for the Lord's people. It's a very practical example that shows us that doing the work of the Lord is not a solo effort. Right? We do it in partnership. People Paul is collecting money for are Christians, are not in Wollongong, but way off in Jerusalem. They've been suffering from a severe famine. And Paul wants the Corinthians to lift their eyes beyond their own city and see that God's work spans the world. Right? When Jesus returns, it's not just us that are going to bow the knee. Every knee on the world will bow before him. And we've been invited to partner with our risen Lord in that amazing mission. He's invited us to join him in building something as big as all of time and space. This is the best thing you will ever make. So you need to treat that work as seriously as any work you've ever done. Look at verse 2. On the first day of every week, set aside a sum of money. Before you spend that money on anything else, prioritize this. Right? You want to give generously? Plan ahead. Calculate installments. Prepare for the day when the money needs to be ready because this is a partnership with God. Now the thing that makes partnership with God so special is hidden in the word income. It says here, given keeping with your income. You know, back in those days, that wasn't money that your boss put in your bank account. Right? It was money that came from things that grew when there was enough rain. It was money you only had because God made you prosper. And so the gift of generosity 
It's actually a, a gift God gives us in exactly the same way a parent gives a child money so they, they can donate to charity. Right? Partners with God dance to his feet. He puts us in a position where we can help build something that's going to last forever. And it kind of seems a bit inefficient, really, doesn't it? You know, God could have just given money directly to the church in Wollongong, to the people who need it. But, but that's not God's way. He loves to give us the deep satisfaction of building his hut with him, of writing his musical with him. And even though it's all his work, he expects us to plan, to take ownership, to make it our work as well. But doing the work of the Lord is more than partnering with God. It's also about partnering with one another. Verses 5 to 9, Paul shares some of his own plans with the Corinthians. And he doesn't tell them all about wanting to go to Macedonia and come to you and Ephesus and all of that stuff because he just wants to let them know what he's planning. What he's actually doing is teaching them something about partnership. Paul doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, There there are lots of variables that make him say things like uh, perhaps and I hope. But the the one thing he does know, I think, is that his future is under God's control. He says, uh, if the Lord permits, in verse 7. But God still expects Paul to read the situation and to make plans. And one of his plans is actually to get back to the Corinthian church. A big reason for this is uh, in verse 6. He says, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. Because even Paul doesn't do the work of the Lord solo. He's carried on his journey by God and the church. There are other churches who could have helped Paul and did. But Paul wants the Corinthians to join with him as he tries to discern God's future and move in step with it. Paul's job as an apostle made him a bit of a danger magnet, actually. Now, I suspect in verse 9, the levels of hostility, of opposition he was getting, made him think, uh, hey, people are reacting against the gospel. Maybe there's going to be positive reactions as well. So I'm going to go for it. Um, not many people were called to be apostles. But helping Paul was a way the Corinthians could go with Paul. And going with him is a way of dancing to his feet, just as he follows God's lead. This is how the Corinthians are going to learn to dance with God on their own. Paul's giving them some practice, some practice of partnership. You know, doing the work of the Lord means seeing that it's the Lord's work, it's not your work, and learning to discern the signs of God being at work, beginning, I guess, with his work in your own life of giving you ways that you can serve him. Doing the work of the Lord means treating that work with total seriousness, right? prioritizing, organizing, planning. It means working in partnership, not just with God, but with each other here. One more thing. Although Paul is writing about a a financial collection, he doesn't think that financial partnership can ever replace partnership in person. In person. And in verse 3, he sends people along with the money. 
In verse 6, he wants to spend real time with them, not just get their assistance to move on. In verse 10, he's planning to send Timothy to them along with the letter that he's been writing, not just give it to some anonymous letter carrier. The letter has got some pretty hard words in it, uh, you may remember, and Timothy's going to be vouching for those words with his person. And so Paul's warning them, just, you know, when you receive Timothy, remember he's not only my mouthpiece, he's God's partner in delivering a bit of tough love to you guys. So receive it. I think there's so many things I'm super encouraged about uh, by our partnership here at the Lakes Church. Um, Just what we heard from the FIEC conference. So encouraging. Um, But we... There's more. There's always more, isn't there? Uh, And I just want to pick um, one thought from the first half of this passage about God's mission. Because God's mission is so much bigger than the Central Coast. So much bigger than Village Church FIEC. It's so much bigger than Kenya. You know, I love the way we partner as a church with people like Norm and Janelle in Kenya. But do you think we could do more? I think we could do more. You know, what have you, what have you learned about the work of the Lord from those partnerships? Right? Have you, as you've watched Norm and Janelle make plans and suffer setbacks and endure with patience and grow in love, have you thought about maybe putting your feet on theirs and trying out the steps of their obedience? Now, what if we decided as a church not just to give a a percentage of our money for mission, but maybe to tithe our members as well. That would be an idea. Here's something I've seen my students do. Right, a bunch of them will make a sus group, right, to suss out um, a, a region or a country in the world and um, a region that needs to know Jesus. And they'll meet at regular intervals to pray for that place that they're sussing out. They will search it. They seek out Christians and gospel workers from that place to pray for. And sure enough, as as their bonds to that place begin to strengthen, one or two people in that group will start imagining what more they could do. And, And they'll make plans to go. Can you think of anything better, more wonderful to do with your life? Maybe we could start with some sus groups. Let me give you some inspiration. Actually, um, let Paul give you some inspiration. Much better. In verses 12 to 20, he drops a bunch of names into his letter, beginning with Apollos. Now, I want to dig into these names a little bit with you because each of these names is a person who got so excited by, by the scale and the grandeur of the work of the Lord that they've made it their life. They're Paul's inspirations. But before we get into uh, their lives, there's a little bit of conflict to deal with um, in verse 12. Paul says, Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Interesting thing, it feels a bit like oversharing, right? Um, If you were here at the start of the series, you might remember that the Corinthians had formed rival fan groups around Paul and Apollos. Apollos was a brilliant public speaker, and his groupies were extremely vocal. 
they would be so keen to know when Apollos was going to come back and visit. So, Paul decides that the Corinthians needed to know about a recent conflict in the staff team. Interesting that he do this. But Paul wanted to send Apollos with Timothy back to Corinth and he wanted the Corinthians to see his lack of jealousy, to see his generosity of spirit. But he also wanted them to know that their hero was refusing to come back and be treated like a hero. Apollos, I think, was waiting until the Corinthians could show a bit more maturity. And the clue to this is verses 13 and 14 that uh, one of our kids read out for us, where Paul suddenly gives them this string of commands. And I, I recently noticed something about these commands for the first time. Uh, and I'd like to run it by, by if that's okay, just to see what you think. Right? So I reckon verses 13 and 14 up on the screen here are actually a summary of the whole book. Right? The four commands in verse 13 have got a military flavor. With the first two are defensive, the next two are more attacking. So be on your guard. It means don't fall asleep at the watch. Stand firm means hold your ground in battle. And standing firm in the faith means protecting the truth of the gospel, holding on to what you were taught about Jesus. Second one, be courageous and strong. That's the attacking one. It means go like a warrior into battle. It's, it's something that God often said to Joshua and the Israelites as they pressed forward to take the promised land. So if the first two words are about looking back in faith, the next two are about looking forward in hope. And that leaves verse 14 to complete the trio, do everything in love. <clears throat> so how is that a summary of the book? Well, let me show you on my little drawing. See there, the beginning of the book looks back in time to the death of Jesus and reminds us who God is and what he's done for us. The end of the book looks forward in time to the resurrection and the death of death and life unending. And the middle of the book looks around in the present time at the body of Christ and the world at large and shows us the work waiting to be done right now. Because the work of the Lord boils down to love. Not just any love but the love Jesus showed in dying for us. And here's the thing. Imitating the love of Christ is just about the hardest work there is. Certainly too hard to do unless it's fueled by faith and hope. And that's why verse 14 follows verse 13. Look back in faith, look forward in hope, so that you can do everything in love. So that brings us back to Apollos and his visit. The day that he can come back and visit them without stirring up the divisions, that is the day when the Corinthians' faith and hope fuel love. And what you get when love stirs into action is somebody who gives themselves to the work of the Lord. It's a a beautiful thing to see. So, Lakes Church, let me introduce you to the Pauline Evangelical Church, Ephesus. There's a bunch of their members who get mentioned in these verses, and I'd like to tell you their story. So, the story begins with Aquila and Priscilla. 
Uh, they're an Italian Jewish couple, and they turned to follow Jesus back in their native city of Rome. They grew a church in their house until the Emperor Con- um, Constantine, I think, was it not? Uh, can't remember the Emperor's name. Anyway, some history person can tell me afterwards. The Roman Emperor expelled all the Jews from Rome, and Priscilla and Aquila were forced out. And so they moved from Rome to Corinth. And when Paul arrived, they invited him to live with them for 18 months while he planted a church. And when Paul left Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila packed their things and went with him to set up house a third time in Ephesus. Now, Paul wasn't going to Ephesus. He was heading straight to Jerusalem. And Priscilla and Aquila, well, started another church in their new house. Now, I'm sure they must have had kids, maybe grandkids, but they left family networks and made a church family, and then they left their church family behind to make another one. That, my friends, is what it looks like when love is fueled by hope. They remind me of Abraham that we read about in our reading, the one who lived like a stranger in a foreign country, He lived in tents, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This family is inspiring because they're continually being drawn towards the hope of the risen Jesus. Well, the next person we meet is Apollos. Apollos was a brilliant Jewish scholar and philosopher from down in Egypt. And he'd heard just enough about Jesus to figure out that he must be the the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And so he set off traveling from synagogue to synagogue around the Mediterranean, giving public lectures and debates. And when he got to Ephesus, what happened is Priscilla and Aquila heard him speak, and they realized that Apollos hadn't actually heard the whole Jesus story. So they invited him back to their home, and they explained the whole gospel to him. And then they sent him to Corinth. Because the Jews in Corinth were struggling with massive attacks. Sorry, the Christians in Corinth uh, from the Jewish synagogue who were just, you know, um, so opposed to them. And so Apollos comes in like this heavyweight champion taking on a second-rate contender uh, in front of a massive crowd. It's like his Jewish opponents, they didn't stand a chance. Um, If Priscilla and Aquila personify hope, I reckon Apollos embodies faith. And not because of the obvious reason, not because he's the ultimate defender of the faith in public against opposition. No, it's because he never got drunk on his fame. He humbly allowed himself to be corrected by Priscilla and her husband. And when the Corinthians form a fan club, he actually goes back to Ephesus. You know, Apollos is a hero of the faith because he displays the marks of the crucified Jesus, the Lord who did not consider equality with God something to be exploited but made himself nothing. Isn't that rare and inspiring? A celebrity who steps out of the limelight so that they don't cast shade on Jesus. How rare is that? Well, finally... Stephanas. You might have noticed Stephanas quietly in Corinth the whole time, left behind when Apollos and then Paul returned to Ephesus. Um, Stephanas was Corinthian born and bred, and he was Paul's first 
convert there. And following Jesus basically changed his whole world. He and his whole household began to devote themselves to serving their new family. We don't know if the church met in his house, it doesn't say. But in verse 15, it says they devoted themselves, which, which usually means putting yourself in charge, actually, that word. But here, they're assigning themselves to be the servants of the believers. And Stephanus and his household show us what love looks like. Right? The love they show by serving the body of Jesus is a mark of the love they have for Jesus himself. <clears throat> Paul holds all of these people up as models of those who have given themselves fully to the work of the Lord. Right? People whose love is fueled by faith and hope. So in the spirit of Paul, I want to hold up one more person. I want you to consider your pastor, Dave Sheath. Dave and Ruth started out like Aquila and Priscilla. They left their church family behind to move to a new town and start a church in their home. Then I guess they lost the Priscilla and Aquila vibe and became a bit more like Stephanas in his household. They settled down. For 21 years, they've devoted themselves to serving us. They've modelled faith, hope, and above all, love. Last Sunday, Dave shared with us the huge and hard reality of his Parkinson's disease. That's news that as a church, we're still processing. And I've been thinking about my dear brother quite a bit as I've meditated on this chapter. And an illness like this changes the way you think about the future, doesn't it? Paul's uncertainties really came to me in a new way. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But the apostle wasn't talking about an illness. He was just recognizing the fact that we all live from day to day by God's permission. Now, Parkinson's doesn't change who Dave is. He's still a servant whose days are God's to determine, just like Paul. He's still a man who has to make plans as he discerns opportunities to partner with God using the gifts God has given him. For the time being, God has given Dave a weakness, a thorn in his flesh. Once again, this doesn't change who he is. It doesn't define him. You know what Paul said about the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians, right? Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Dave's illness simply makes visible the weakness that has always marked him. The weakness that marks every human being who names Jesus as a Lord. Because God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So I think I want to say to all of us that a leader whose weakness is on display like that is a leader whose Christ-like dependence on God is on display. And that is a leader to be cherished, isn't it? It's a model to emulate. 
As Paul puts it in today's passage, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. (coughs) Submitting doesn't mean boringly doing what you're told. It means dancing to Dave's feet. Watch his discipleship. Be inspired to emulate his faith, his hope, his love, and pray for him too. I want to finish by thinking one last time about love. The last four verses of this letter, Paul takes the pen from the professional scribe who'd been writing down as he dictated, and he had some last words in his own handwriting. They feel a bit like your mum sticking her head out the car window as she and your dad are driving off for a week away, yelling out, whatever you do, don't forget to feed the dog. Yeah? Or, or whatever is the one most important thing for your mum. Right? For Paul, that one most important thing was love. Right? Love was what he called the most excellent way. Now, I know it feels a kind of uncomfortable that he adds that curse in, verse 22. Um, what does he say? If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. But it's really a window, I think, into how jealously protective he feels about this church. Because you know why? This church caused Paul more grief than any other church that he ever pastored. God's given us two of Paul's letters, but he wrote a lot more. Before this letter, he'd already written a letter warning them about their immoral behavior, but things didn't get any better, which is why he wrote 1 Corinthians. Then the plans that he made about going through Macedonia and paying them a long visit that we just read about, those plans never happened. Because when Timothy came back from delivering this letter, he brought such disturbing news that Paul sailed directly to Corinth, had an incredibly painful time with them and went back to Ephesus straight away to write a severe letter which finally this time actually got some real repentance and so he wrote the first half of 2 Corinthians filled with comfort only to hear that they had allowed false teachers in and so by the end of 2 Corinthians he's rebuking them again eventually he did visit them a third time and things went well but their internal divisions never really resolved. So in the face of all that grief, there's just one last detail that I find deeply touching. Paul's predictable sign-off in all of his letters, it's always the same, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But this letter, and only this letter, he adds a postscript, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Now, the Corinthian church was utterly soul-destroying. It was Paul's thorn in the spirit. But God gave him the one gift he needed to stay committed to them. He filled Paul with a deep love for this most unlovable bunch. You know, at the end of his luminous chapter on love, Paul says this, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. They're beautiful words. But don't be deceived. Loving, unlovable people, and let's face it, that's all of us, right? At least some of the time. Loving, unlovable people is hard work. And loving them with the humble, self-giving love of Jesus is very hard indeed. 
The only way we can do it is by looking back to the cross in faith, by looking forward to the resurrection in hope, and by dancing to God's feet. Because love is his work, it's not ours. As we look around at our brothers and sisters here at the lakes, as we lift our eyes to distant shores and the work of the Lord in far countries, we'll see that to do the Lord's work among fellow workers who love us back, who inspire us by making Christ visible in their lives. We are doing the Lord's work together. So therefore... As it says in Hebrews, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.